Welcome to the Two Degrees C Climate Chat Podcast, your weekly guide to what's happening within the climate around the world. My name is Neil Vinnikirk, the Executive Director and a founding member of Two Degrees C. Along with co-founders Dr. Carson Shine and Jenny Disson, we cover issues relating to the climate crisis. So join us as we explore in the Two Degrees C Climate Chat. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Two Degrees C Climate Chat. Our guest today is Jason Boyer, the Chief Meteorologist for ABC News Channel 13 in Asheville, North Carolina. He's here to discuss his role as a trained atmospheric scientist in the climate conversation and the broader role of broadcast media in delivering scientific information in a digestible way. So join us as we chat about today's climate. Well, welcome back, everyone. Um, joining me today, we've got uh, Dr. Carson Shine, as always, and our guest Hi. today, um, Jason Boyer, the Chief Meteorologist from ABC's uh, News 13 station in Asheville, North Carolina. So welcome to both of you. Great to be here, Neil. So, um, Carson, let's start with you. You're a climatologist, and Jason is a meteorologist. Why don't we, um, for the listeners' sake, differentiate the, the difference between the two and why both are so critically important to the climate conversation? Certainly. Um, the you know, atmospheric science is our broad spectrum of um, weather and climate uh, going from what's happening in the atmosphere, the behavior of the atmosphere over a few seconds out to centuries. And... Uh, Basically, the difference uh, between a meteorologist and a, and a climatologist is that a meteorologist is focused more on researching and understanding the behavior of the atmosphere over shorter time, time scales or shorter distances and looking more a lot more at the dynamics of the atmosphere, um, whereas a climatologist is looking more at the statistical behavior of the atmosphere over a longer period of time um, and trying to understand how both of them are trying to understand how they relate to each other. Um, since, of course, climatology is uh, is the sum total of, of the weather conditions out there for a given place. And uh, and so bringing those two together, there's really not any defined um, boundary as to where meteorology ends and climatology starts. All right. And, and so, uh, so Jason would be on the, the first half of uh, the, the what's happening today, what's happening this week, what's happening next month, what's happening maybe, you know, towards uh, um, the year expected. And then from that point forward, you would start looking into decades and, and time uh, forward from there. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a, that's a good assessment. Good. So, Jason, let's have you introduce yourself and, and tell the, the, the listeners how you came to this, you know, find yourself in this really important juncture. Uh, it's an intersection between climate science and the public. Um, and uh, a little bit about your background. Sure, Neil. Uh, you mentioned I am the chief meteorologist here in Asheville, North Carolina at the ABC affiliate, WLOS. Uh, been in this position, this role for almost 12 years now. And it's the longest I've spent in any position in broadcast television. Um, my career started early in the uh, 2000s, and I started in Tennessee. I've moved around. I've been here in Asheville. I've been in Chattanooga, and I've worked in Denver uh, before coming back here to Asheville for a second time as the chief meteorologist this time. So um, overall, broadcast meteorology, I've been in uh, the business for um, almost 21 years. It'll be 21 years in February. And uh, my background from before then, my education is atmospheric science from the University of Illinois. 
Gotcha. So with 20 years of, of experience um, and this responsibility um, to forecast the weather, you know, into the homes of people, um, what have you seen over this time period about, you know, what kind of changes as far as climate change have, are, is, are visible in, in your daily work? Um, you know, and I'm thinking more towards any things like uh, allergies that are presenting, um, you know, conditions, things like that. Are you seeing a, a greater occurrence of those? Absolutely. Um, the, the more striking differences in climate here in Western North Carolina have occurred with uh, heavy rain events, heavy precipitation events, more frequent ones, um, longer durations, and intensity-wise, the precipitation rates have increased since I've been here in the last 12 years. And it's uh, more noticeable when you have um, more flash flooding risk. You are certainly having more mudslide risk now. And uh, we have a lot of steep slopes, and that leads to the uh, mudslide risk um, increasing too when you have high precipitation events like we've had over the past uh, 10, 15, even 20 years. We've also seen our nighttime low temperatures uh, strikingly warmer, and that has led to more invasive species of plant growth that is affecting agriculture and somebody's yard or even garden. Uh, local gardeners are having to struggle with keeping more of these uh, species out of their gardens um, and destroying their crops and such that they're growing. We've um, had an increase in daytime temperatures for high maximum um, temperatures, but it hasn't been as dramatic as the nighttime low temperatures on average have increased several degrees, especially in the late winter and also mid to late summer months. I've seen that more of a um, of a uh, recognition of sorts, if you will, and the data that is uh, supporting that. So our winter months have been interesting too because of those nighttime lows. We're not getting quite as cold as we used to. So insects aren't um, dying off as they would in in many ways before spring comes around and they reemerge. So a lot of the mosquito populations, gnat populations are, are certainly more uh, prevalent uh, now that we're seeing, or prevalent, I should say, but that we're seeing more and more of them um, affecting and being kind of an annoyance, if you will, to the population. Well, that's really interesting. And I, and I know, uh, I mean, much like uh, other areas in the United States, uh, you've, you've gone through the, you know, speaking of insects, you've gone through the cicada cycle now. Um, with, with events that pop up from time to time, whether it be, um, you, you reference um, it, things like insects or, or diseases that are, are, are you know, spreading because of, of changes that are occurring and war, warming that's occurring. Do you find that um, there's an increased need for you to educate um, the public with regard to climate change as part of the understanding to, to see what actually fits within that description and what doesn't? Um, and how, how do you approach that, that responsibility? Good questions, Neil. Yeah, I think there's a thirst for wanting to know more um, in regard to what is causing this change? Is it strictly climate change or is it a cyclical thing? Um, so my responsibility is to certainly delve into that and continuously update my or educate myself on the recent data that I'm seeing. And as a scientist, you know, I'm fact-based on my opinions, if you will, on what the uh, situation is for uh, research. And I think that the, uh, the public overall is interested in knowing what changes are occurring? Can we or can we not link certain weather events 
not uh, let alone the insect populations, the extended pollen seasons, and so on. But can we relate certain weather events uh, to climate change? And that is one of the bigger um, or important issues that I, I certainly try to tackle uh, when I can. And so when an extreme weather event occurs here in our region or in the state or the southeast, usually that's what I'm, I'm delving into is trying to you know, determine whether or not this is more of a direct relation to climate change, or is it just one of those anomalies that happens uh, due to a cycle or um, some kind of type of weather feature, synoptic or larger. Very good. Described barefoot luxury, the casually sophisticated Southern Cross Club is Little Cayman's original resort. This hidden gem is as unique and vibrant as the island it inhabits. A true island treasure, it is the perfect place to dive, fish and relax. Its 14 beachfront bungalows are situated on 900 feet of white sand, only minutes from the world-class diving found only in Little Cayman. Visit www.southerncrossclub.com to book your escape to tranquility. So as a TV personality, Jason, um, there's this responsibility of, you know, each day you're going into the homes of people, like I said, and you're delivering this message to a pretty diverse audience. And not only in age, but, you know, um, of backgrounds and political leanings. And, um, you know, how does this influence um, your day-to-day -day messaging? Do you feel there's an, uh, an implied added weight now um, to try and get um, an acceptance of science? Yes, I certainly think that from my standpoint, personally, I feel that there has been more of a commonality between the public and science-based evidence that there's more of a questioning of it, unfortunately, uh, from certain sides. And we try to maintain a balance, obviously, um, when I'm delivering information, whether it be the forecast or something climate change related, as I mentioned before, I'm a scientist, so I am uh, evidence-based on my messaging. And, you know, I don't try to think about whether someone that I'm talking to um, through the camera might be more right-leaning or left-leaning or fall in the middle. You know, I'm focused on helping inform and educate the viewers at the same time, regardless of their political or religious uh, beliefs. So that's that's where I have to kind of toe the line and, and certainly be a scientist and, and maintain the evidence-based uh, messaging that I try to uh, get across every day. Yeah, gotcha. So, um, just, just out of curiosity, I mean, you, you also speak to a lot of uh, school groups and church mm -hmm. groups and such. And, and how do you, how do you uh, maybe modify or, or, or change the, the discussion based on the audience? If, you know, you're, you're dealing with a, a group that is perhaps uh, less less likely to accept the idea of climate change um, versus one that is that's uh, that's fine with the idea. Yeah, it can be tough, Karsten. Uh, good question because you know I talk to a lot of civic clubs, uh, lions clubs, or Boy Scout groups, Girl Scout groups. So uh, it runs the gamut um, in terms of public speaking at times on on the subject. So uh, there are times when I'm actually asked to directly. Um, talk about a subject like climate change or address it. Um, other times it's just come and talk to us about your job and, 
And then the subject comes up by a question from somebody in the audience. So, you know, gauging the audience is one thing you kind of have to do. Like a comedian gauges the audience as they're standing in front of them. But again, I, I, I make it clear to them that I'm not trying to push any kind of agenda. I'm a scientist and evidence-based um, messaging is what I'm about. So I will present to them evidence that um, I am confident is um, reliable, um, has been certified by uh, scientists across the country, other folks that are way smarter than me. And I will you know, show that evidence and say, look, whether or not you want to quote unquote believe in climate change or not believe in it, um, understand that there's something going on. There is a change, a, a uh, market change in uh, global temperature, sea surface uh, temperatures rising and falling, whatever you are in the oceans, but obviously the rising uh, water levels along the coast are affecting it. We're getting bigger storms. We're having more frequent rain events, heavy rain events. So all of that, I think, you know, ties it to climate change in, in, a, in a neat package, but it's also giving them the the individual impact saying, look, you guys experienced a week ago a tremendous rainfall event. Now, when you put that on the scale and look at the threshold for flash flooding and those thresholds are changing because we're getting more frequent heavy rain events, we're getting um, areas that are flooding more often that didn't flood in the past. So I think tying it into them and relating it to them more on a personal level like that, um, whether it threatens their property or not, but it's a it's a big situation for them to understand and certainly be ready to uh, realize. And I think that helps to tie it all together. Yeah, and and I just want to point out, uh, you know, really important uh, thing here is that uh, you know research uh, scientists have often been criticized as, as being unable to effectively communicate this this climate change message, and so it's really important. Uh, that broadcast meteorologists like yourself who are going into the homes of, of people every evening, that they are able to communicate that in a way that these researchers just are unable to do. And that's, that's really, really important, I think, in this whole, uh, in this whole messaging. Very good point. Yeah. And that actually brings up uh, the next idea that I wanted to talk about, because I know, Jason, you moderated a, um, a a panel on climate change in 2017. And I mean, this topic is extremely polarizing in the US in particular right now, as we all know, uh, politically speaking. And <clears throat> so from a broadcast media standpoint, how, how have you seen since that time in 2017 until now, what, what changes have you seen occurring in the broadcast media messaging, um, you know, and how people are, are reporting climate? Definitely seen an increase in addressing the issue, obviously, on a daily basis in some cases. Um, some of my colleagues work at stations across the country that are directly or more directly impacted by climate change. Miami, where coastal flooding, even flooding in the city, is now becoming much more common. Uh, Denver, Colorado, where snowpack uh, is uh, being reduced um, more regularly. Wildfires are becoming more of a year-round issue rather than a seasonal issue. So I, I follow those friends and colleagues and certainly keep abreast of the, the science that they are um, messaging. And I see a lot more of these broadcast meteorologists like myself doing more in-depth stories on climate change, featuring um, stories on climate change, 
And we also have the benefit of certain colleagues in our group that are part of a um, collaboration effort. And the, the entity is called Climate Central. So Climate Central uh, focuses on providing broadcast meteorologists uh, graphical um, evidence and science, obviously evidence-based um, research on climate change, not only for a global scale, but also for a local scale. So they can cater certain graphics to our, what we call our demographic area, our TV market. So like in Western North Carolina for Asheville and then Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina, which is our TV market. Um, I can see the data and use it for a local aspect and, and give them that more, um, prominent element of look, look, this is changing here. Our nighttime lows have been warming and our daytime highs have been warming and the pollen seasons are extending. Uh, insect populations are growing. Um, you know, we're not seeing uh, the plant species that we used to see. There are invasive species coming in. So all of those kind of tie in to the messaging and um, the storytelling almost of, of the weather forecast too. Mm -hmm. I mean, as... Uh... As broadcast professionals, because you're all experts in your field, um, you know, in, in public broadcasting, um, you know, there's this responsibility that rests upon you that, you know, you're the people entering people's homes to, and, you know, they trust and rely on you for the news and for, for, for the forecast of weather coming. So obviously this is true for yourself about um, you, you having to take on this implied responsibility, but have you seen this occur with the newscasters and other professionals in, you know, in the room with you? Do you feel like they're also starting to feel the weight of it? In a sense, yes. Um, and again, it is, it is, I think, um, specific to market. It can, it can vary market to market in terms of television market. So, um, a place like Miami, as I mentioned before, has such a direct effect from climate change, being a coastal city. Um, New Orleans, obviously, another market that might have more of an impact um, directly. So I think there is that sense of, hey, this is this is a real problem and yeah. we need to be talking more about it. And I think that my colleagues, not only in broadcast meteorology, but in the newsroom, uh, the anchors and and even our producers are, are helping educate themselves too on it. And that's part of my role as well is if they have a question about something, they yep. can come to me. We're the station scientists now, not just the meteorologists, you know, smiling and giving you a high and low temperature with some pretty icons of sunshine or, you know, station scientists, that role is a very common role that is um, used now. For um, someone in my position, we are not only expected to address meteorology and climatology, but uh, volcanology, geology, you know, when there's a major earthquake, when there's a tsunami, when there's um, um, infestation, you know, this brood X cicada, you know, let's yeah. talk about that. You know, we need to be ready um, to address a variety of subjects. So I think that's helping us educate others within the newsroom, too. I think that's really helpful, actually. So sometimes in your broadcasts, you sometimes reference um, uh, something called cocoa rise observations. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, the citizen science rainfall and um, snowfall observing network. Um, so how important do you think this sort of supplementary data is? And, you know, when it comes to public participation, how meaningful and useful is it, um, you know, to, to, to your efforts to be able to forecast? 
It's vital, Neil. Um, I will be the first one to say that I use Cocoa Ross almost on a daily basis, especially when there's precipitation events, obviously. That's what it's more inclined to use, um, or at least help us out with um, rainfall, hail, snow. Um, so when we have a precipitation event, there's the Doppler estimated rainfall that you get um, via a product and the software that we have. And then there's the actual observations that are measured by these um, this community collaborative effort. And Kokoros is, is vital for me to know not only where the rainfall fell, how much of it fell, and understand or maybe have pattern recognition over the course of time that we're seeing distribution of rainfall and intensity of rainfall changing. And thus, mm -hmm. that's more of the climate change connection. Um, we're seeing heavier rain events here. We're seeing more rain events in areas that may not have gotten uh, heavier rain events in the past. So that data is available and it's it's vital to my daily operation and forecasting and messaging as well. And, and, and I'll just I'll just add, um, you know, Kokoros started a few decades ago as a as a project to try to capture more hyper local um, rainfall information after a, um, a severe thunderstorm uh, created a flash flood in downtown Fort Collins, Colorado. And the only gauge in the area was at the airport a few miles away, and it had, I think, a tenth of an inch of rain in it. And uh, so there really was no information for the researchers and, you know, and other people to understand what had happened and where the rain fell and how fast it fell and things like that. So that was this brainchild and the understanding that the uh, official rain uh, rain gauges are very, very expensive, but anybody could really put a rain gauge, a four inch rain gauge out in their yard and take a daily measurement of how much rain fell and you know, helps them in their gardens and such as are watering their lawns, as well as helping researchers and meteorologists and, and everybody understand what's going on at a, at a much finer uh, scale. Yeah. So I, I definitely encourage anybody listening to yep. become a Kokoraz observer. Easy to do. <laughs> and and to, to that end, you know, a two degrees C for those uh, that are listening for the first time, you know, we have a uh, an initiative to to connect individuals to um, climate science uh, using tools like the one that's in the picture behind me, the two degree C leaf. And so the question to you, Jason, is, you know, a, a, a sensor platform like the two degree C leaf that's collecting temperature and humidity, um, how would something like that um, help you in Western North Carolina? Um, you know, with your ability to forecast um, at a local level? Yeah, there's been an emphasis in, in our industry for more hyper-local forecasts. And in, in, in a nutshell, we are rarely showing, unless it's an extreme case, a current temperature map for the southeast or the mid-Atlantic or vice, you know, moving in and out of the area. I will show a couple of local, very local current temperature maps, but we're focused more on getting to the forecast and understanding weather patterns now. So that kind of information would be essential and would help us in many, many ways, many facets to it to not only get us a better forecast, but better understand those patterns and see if there is that linking um, to climate change at some point. So, you know, I always argue or say, the more data, the better. I mean, I don't think you can go wrong. You know, give me all you can give me and I'll absorb as much as I can. And certainly um, we need that reliable data. And I think that's the key to it is it's a reliable source that um, 
you're not going to get erroneous uh, measurements that may skew the data and such. So that's a, that's an important aspect to it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and I should point out, you know, you're you're in the, the mountains of Western North Carolina, where every valley and ridge has its yeah. own microclimate. And so and most of these ridges and valleys don't have any weather observations inside them. Correct. Um, and it varies whether it's facing north, facing south or west or east. Uh, it depends on, on what the weather is going to be in that particular location. And it may be vastly different in the, in the next valley over. So having those uh, those observations at a much finer scale is going to be very important, I would think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so we're in an age now where we have... Um, we have computer science and we have apps that you know look at weather for us. We have accurate weather forecasting um, in broadcast media. Um, you know, the days of the farmer's almanac are, are, are not quite the same um, as, as what they used to be. So how do you, how do you anticipate with, you know, in the age of supercomputing and all of this, this data coming in, how do you see that that's going to change what you do and, and what do you, where do you think meteorology is going to go? Well, the sky's the limit. You know, in 20 years that I've been in the business, there has been an extreme change between the technology then and now. Uh, radar technology has really come a long way. That is now allowing us to dissect thunderstorms on a small scale. And um, this leads us to the ability to give a better forecast in a short range, um, 30 minutes, an hour, two hours from now on a event that may be a life-threatening event, whether it be a flash flood, a large hail event, damaging hail, or in the worst case, a tornado. Mm -hmm. So being able to see the information within that thunderstorm, something that would have been more of a pipe dream 20 years ago, or a, or a supercomputer that could only produce that kind of an image, a 3D volumetric uh, scan of a thunderstorm. We are able to do that now in our office on the air and show the audience that. So I love the ability and, and the capabilities of the technology already, um, but it's also such an educational tool. And I think the more you educate the audience, the better you are, so that the next time something happens, they understand what they need to be doing or the impacts that are possible. Um, mm -hmm. And thus they'll take the necessary action sooner rather than later. And you're you know, helping keep them safe. And that's our number one goal is keeping them safe and informed. Um, when it comes to computer modeling of weather, dramatic changes, obviously, in the last 20 years as well. We, you know, when I started out, we didn't give a seven day or 10 day forecast because it was too unreliable. You couldn't really be confident that anything beyond five days was going to be worthy of showing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but now it's quite often, depending on what television market you go or city you visit, if you turn on the local TV station, you might see a seven day, you might see a 10, you might even see a 14 day forecast. Now, 14 day forecast, that's a lot of information to digest as a viewer. I can't, you know, trying to picture seven days on top, seven days on bottom for the same location. So that may be a little bit soon, if you will, for people to um, be able to handle it. But we're such an information-driven society now with everything in the palm of our hands. It's instant this, it's instant, instant that. So computer modeling is starting to get more refined, better resolutions, and more ability to see smaller scale meteorological phenomena. So that is helping us uh, forecast better. 
I think the future is going to be bright because the, the technology and the data that's being collected, like what you're doing or what the Coco Ross um, community is doing or your cell phones, anywhere that is collecting data of temperature, pressure, wind and humidity. Mm-hmm. My goodness, the, the, you know, the data is endless and we don't have the ability to incorporate all this data yet in these models because it is just a tremendous amount of data that they're already taking in. So the computing ability is limited at this point. The software is, is not even made yet to handle all this, but it will come. And so when we start to incorporate all this additional data, it is only going to help make these forecasts better, uh, more accurate, and even maybe spread out further in time. So that's something I look forward to, a very promising future for that. I, I imagine that uh, at least a, a small part of your job is uh, fielding questions from people who are trying to plan an event that may be months away um, and uh, having to, to jump into that role of climatologist uh, versus meteorologist right now and, and uh, give them an understanding of what the conditions might be like versus an actual forecast. I, I do. And, and that is something that is um, unique now, more so than it was, uh, say, 10 years ago. In fact, I had a Facebook message just yesterday of a gentleman who, and again, we're going to, this is a whole other subject, social media, <laughs> yeah. who had seen a YouTube video from, he just said, a meteorologist somewhere that was talking about how brutally cold this winter was going to be and how brutally snowy it was going to be for um, North Carolina and the Western North Carolina. Okay. So, you know, he was asking me my opinion on it. And I honestly, I answered him. I said, you know, you have to take this with this big grain of salt. You know, we're talking six months in advance, trying to predict an overall pattern uh, of climate. And there is no model out there right now that can do that accurately enough for us, but we recognize patterns and that's the key. What is the ENSO that's going to drive um, our, our winter weather? Last year, it was La Nina. La Nina is now gone. It's neutral. Um, and so when I talk to people about that, I, I try to educate them on what La Nina, El Nino, and a neutral cycle means and how it af- affects the weather in the United States. So winter weather, it's interesting that people focus, because of our region of the country and our topography, we have Mountains, the, the highest point east of the Mississippi River is in, is in my television market, Mount Mitchell. It's almost 6,700 uh, feet, right? Or a little more than that. So um, you're looking at a much more impactful winter forecast here overall. It affects more people in the wintertime because snow and ice uh, usually fall on larger scales, okay? Mm-hmm. Whereas you're talking a daily thunderstorm occurs in a um, five, 10 mile radius, and that's about it, right? So winter weather here is is certainly more uh, top of mind for people. It, it raises the anxiety level a little more for our population here. So I get the idea that people want to know what winter is going to be like, maybe now in July, but I have to be honest with them and say, there's really no way of telling you exactly what's going to happen. You have to understand that if we go into a neutral pattern like we are now with ENSO, that's more likely going to lead us to a pretty typical winter, right? You know, if you just take that in one uh, aspect, but then I go into the whole, there's the North Atlantic oscillation, there's the Pacific decadal oscillation, there's, you know, Greenland blocking, the polar vortex, and, you know, you start getting pretty complicated in that. And, in, and those things you cannot predict in, in, on large scale time 
scales. You can only do it a few weeks in advance and the, that's about it. So, yeah, I would, I would add though, that, uh, that NOAA's uh, climate prediction center does on a monthly basis, put yes. out seasonal forecasts, which yes, they do. they're not really a, um, a day-to-day forecast of, of right. events, but rather probability of it being warmer, colder, wetter, or drier than, than expected right. than usual. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing I try to message too, is it's like, I can't tell you specifically, but we, we deal with probability. That is yeah. what my job is. You know, the chance of something happening or the chance of it not happening. And thus, if I say you want to talk about, is it going to be a brutally cold winter? Um, well, we could have cold snaps. Absolutely. But how, what are the chances of it averaging out to be colder than normal December, January, and February, you know? So and in that sense, climatology is much the same in that uh, most of what we're doing climatologically is probability. Will will the future be warmer? Uh, what's the probability of it increasing by a few degrees or more? What's the probability of increased hurricanes? Things like that. Yep. Yeah, I think it's you know it's, you're in the business of building trust, um, you know, with the public, because you're you're having to take these very complicated uh, weighted subjects and you have you have to interpret them in a way that uh, the layman can understand, and then um, you know build trust from there. Like you say, using all of these different data streams to try and build something that they can rely on, mm-hmm. and come back uh, on a daily basis, uh, you know, for for the accurate weather forecast. With um, I know that uh, you know your 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 shirt is red, um, but uh, that's not uh, it's probably a coincidence. But I know that your your favorite baseball team is also red, being the Cardinals. Um, how do you think that climate change is going to affect sports casting? Interesting. Yeah. Um... Something I don't give a ton of thought to, honestly, but, you know, um, go Cardinals for the fans out there. Uh, yeah, I think that because we're seeing, well, look at it recently. We have wildfires in the West that are burning. It's baseball season, right? Let's just use that as our, our example for now because baseball is one of the more popular sports still in America, and it's played during the warmest months of the year. Um, so if you look at the data – and you see what's happening now in the West, I would not be surprised if more teams and organizations are going to focus on keeping not only their players safe, but the fans safe as well from extreme heat, from um, air quality issues like smoke pollution and and heavy rain events, uh, extreme severe weather events like that. I wouldn't be surprised if you see more of these organizations focus on maybe building more retractable dome stadiums um, so they can have a controlled environment when necessary if the, if the weather is extreme or wildfires are blowing smoke into Seattle or Denver and they can close the roof and, and still hold the game while the air quality outside may be extremely poor. They can still have the game inside um, and heat, heat events, the heat um, stress is a big deal for athletes. And I know a lot of high schools are monitoring this during their uh, football seasons, uh, preseason practices, the two-a-days, or however you want to go about that. They are um, much more vigilant now to keep those younger athletes safe. So you might likely see something like that. You might see uh, rescheduling of more sporting events due to not only effects of a rain out, which we we've seen a lot of these uh, so far this season in Major League Baseball, and what they're doing now is making double headers. And the new rule 
if you're not aware, is that doubleheaders are now only seven innings. They used to just play nine or how many they had to play and then play another uh, game later in the evening. So you might see more doubleheaders because of the rainouts that occur more frequently. Um, you also might see scheduling changes in terms of moving an event to later in the day, getting out of the peak of the heat of the day, or maybe moving it to earlier in the day. It depends on what kind of um, event you're talking about. I know that in Qatar, the um, the uh, is it Dubai? I guess the World Cup next year is going to be in, uh, is it Qatar? I believe it's Qatar. And they they had, obviously the climate there is a desert climate, extremely hot this time of the year. So typically the World Cup is played in the summer, but they're going to move it to, I believe, November so they can keep it cooler. So the athletes mm-hmm. won't be stressed and, and, and the fans and they won't risk anything. So. Yeah. That's kind of the, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, baseball season were to start earlier in the yes. year um, in the coming decades. Yeah, and, and I know we're seeing an uh, an increase in in certain instances like uh, like lightning, um, and I'm sure that that has to begin to play into you know like you said these hyper local forecasts that are, you know there are people are actively watching this stuff. Um, I know in in some sports like Formula One, they're actually going as far as, as far as to actually employ their own meteorologists to help them you yep. know, forecast locally so they can make changes on you know while they're at the track. So uh, some pr- pretty incredible things that are happening. And I think if I can add something, having that technology, I'll be watching a sporting event, and you'll see um, somebody who's not a meteorologist, the trainer or whomever, a, a, a pitching coach, and they have the the iPad. And if there's weather in the area, I've seen them actually looking at it, you know, talking about it. So I think that's wonderful because do I want them making the decisions? Obviously not. I want somebody trained in meteorology, which is eventually going to go, you know, the, the hierarchy will go to them and say, do we need to, you know, worry about this? Is this game going to be played? Or, um, But it's great to see that they're paying attention to that because it helps educate them without me directly educating them. I can see that they're learning something about storm motion and, and trying to interpret radar data. That's, that's a good thing overall. We, we encourage our audience, you know, we, we promote our weather app all the time um, on a daily basis, you know, download our weather app, download the weather app, go to our website and you'll have the radar in the palm of your hand, you know, is our little catchphrase and you'll get your hourly forecast in the palm of your hand anytime you need it, because that's what society is. It is a instant gratification society almost now you know we want that information as soon as possible we want as much as possible so right it's, it's a good thing overall i think that people are are seeing more frequent weather and and being able to look at data like that yeah some uh, some job security for you i think uh in in in, in the future as you never as know we progress through this um, and uh, yeah, I, I, all I can say is uh, thank you for, for coming and joining us for the TWC Climate Chat today. It's really interesting to, to have your point of view and, and uh, we do thank you and wish you all of the success uh, with uh, um, News 13 and, and as you go forward. With so many wonderful destinations around the world to choose from, a little help can go a long way. Quest Adventures is your premium adventure travel company offering a wide and diverse selection of destinations to choose from. With dive adventures from the Pacific to the Caribbean and adventure travel from Costa Rica to Africa, Quest Dive Adventures offers packages including flights and accommodations, activities, transfers, diving and more. Everything to enjoy your perfect vacation. What's your request?
Carson and I are going to uh, switch and talk about some news, and we'd love to have you, uh, if you have some time, to stick around and, and uh, participate on our news. Um, for those of you that are, are new to, to listening, um, we like to um, send out a, a newsletter once a week containing two or three of the latest news cycle um, climate change stories that are, are, are making their, their way through the cycle and uh, add that, to that uh, a scientific report that we found interesting just once a week, um, just the facts. And uh, you can look for that at 2degreesc.org um, under the newsletter section. Um, so, Carson, having a look at uh, things that are currently happening, obviously the, uh, the, the, the biggest uh, concern right now is that you know, there's uh, um, drought and, and heat on the western side of the of uh, the country. And the, the headline says, American West stuck in the cycle of heat and drought and fire, experts warn. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, right now I'm, I'm, I'm living just uh, north of Seattle and we just went through uh, a record-setting heat wave a few weeks ago, um, you know, relative to when this is airing, obviously. Um, but uh, yeah, a, a town in Canada, Lytton, uh, British Columbia, set uh, Canada's all-time record, 121 uh, degrees Fahrenheit, uh, almost uh, 50 degrees Celsius. Um, and, uh, you know, when that heat dome moved away, the winds came in and a small fire quickly engulfed the entire city the very next day, um, destroyed about 90% of it. Uh, but uh, something like 500 people, I think, uh, or more have, uh, you know, succumbed to the heat during that heat wave. Um, and now another heat dome is setting up over uh, the Rockies uh, for this uh, this coming weekend, I think. And, uh, you know, we've already looked at some of the attribution of, of that heat wave over the Pacific Northwest and uh, pretty much come to the conclusion it would have been uh, meteorologically impossible to have that level of heat uh, without climate change, without global warming. Um, and this... Um, you know this pattern is is really becoming much more of a of of a norm out here out west um, than it used to be um, as as partly as a result of of climate change and uh, you know I listened to an interview with a uh, with a wildfire uh, firefighter last night who was uh, lamenting that they don't get a break anymore they're fighting fires almost year round now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just move from one to the next without without any relief and getting stretched thinner and thinner. And this is this is a prevailing pattern that's happened over the last several years. And it it is getting worse um, every every year. And there really doesn't seem to be much sign of it changing um, as some of the atmospheric circulation patterns are changing that uh, favor this sort of environment in the summertime out here. Um, you know, Jason, you want to want to add in on that? Yeah, and heat waves usually feed off themselves, if you will, because we're talking about a daily baking of sun, clear skies mostly. The air temperature continues to warm, and when you start evaporating that water out of the ground quickly, especially in the western United States where relative humidity values in these situations can be down into the single digits, um, once that evaporation process has really drawn all that water out, the uh, solar incidence, the radiation is just going to start heating the air up. It doesn't have to do any work now to evaporate some of the uh, water from the ground. So it's just going to exacerbate the situation, continue to build the heat. So you can see, 
you know, triple digit heat for weeks, you know, and, and it's, it's harder to break these ridges of high pressure down once they're that strong. It's just getting harder and harder. We've disrupted the jet stream pattern. Um, there's been evidence of that from climate change. A warmer globe has slowed the jet stream down. And once you do that, it's like a, a river that flows across the globe. It's a circulation belt, the polar jet, the subtropical jet, and then the um, polar vortex, um, vortices, you could say. There's one at the North Pole, one at the South Pole. So you slow it down, you, you don't have the ability to move synoptic scale systems like this around much mm -hmm. more easily or break them down. So you're, um, you're stuck, <laughs> as they and say. The warmth is also pushing that farther north in the in the summertime so that's bringing heat to places that normally have never experienced that level of, of intensity right uh, before and bring thunderstorms into those dry places and lightning induced uh, wildfires that they really never had before and i mean th this is obviously affecting species besides humans um you know at least humans have uh, quite a lot of uh, tools available to, to, for for mitigations and adaptations but um, as as far as species goes um Carson we know this is happening terrestrially but this is also true of the ocean as well correct it is absolutely true um just uh, in that in that uh pacific northwest heat wave uh, a few weeks ago um some scientists have estimated that over a billion um, marine species, uh, marine animals uh, along the coast died uh, during that heat wave, uh, clams, mussels, starfish um, that uh, were trapped uh, out of the water when, you know, these low tides came in during the middle of the, of the day and just mm -hmm. baked these, these, uh, these creatures in their shells and such. Yeah, quite dramatic. Really, really, really dramatic. Um, let's stay in the ocean for, because there's another headline I wanted to talk to you about. This particular one talks about remotely piloted sailboats monitor cold pools in tropical environments. Yeah, this one, this one is really, uh, you know, uh, geeking out my science. I, I, I really enjoy the the innovation that that's out there with technology these days to be able to monitor remotely places that we've never been able to take observations before and these um these sailboats called sail drones uh, they're basically uh, autonomous uh, small vessels that uh, have you know the, they have a sail they have instruments uh, aboard and they and they just uh, fly the waves across the oceans and go into places where, you know, out of shipping lanes, out of places where we ha might have buoys, and they're collecting really valuable observations. Like uh, this article itself uh, discussed uh, discovery of, of these cold pools that are brought about by tropical thunderstorms. Uh, as, the, as the air descends out of them and the rain descends out of them, it, it evaporatively cools and creates these cold areas um, in the tropics. And you know, we don't yet understand what implications that might have for things like El Nino um, or the movement of this belt of thunderstorms called the intertropical convergence zone um, through the tropics um, or even on sea surface temperatures in, in that area and what that might mean for the, the marine species in those places. So it's really exciting to start to get this information into the hands of scientists. Yeah. Fantastic. Hopefully we'll see more tools much like our own um, be, be used to, to capture uh, climate observational data 
uh, from remote places, just like these cell drones. If I can well, add something, Neil, quickly. Absolutely, they, please. The cruise industry, because of the pandemic, has been decimated. So we don't have cruise ships that are actually useful in collecting some of this weather data out there, mm -hmm. uh, moving about the oceans. Um, so that data is also very important for computer modeling on a short-term and even long-term basis when you're talking weather. Um, I know that some of the improvements that are coming out for the American model, the global forecast systems model, uh, include better sampling of ocean data, better sampling of not only tropospheric data, where most of the weather occurs below about 35,000 feet to the surface, but also stratospheric and even mesospheric data. So mm -hmm. we're going uh, 100,000 feet up, you know, um, in, in the atmosphere to, to determine what's happening there, because it's important to know what's happening there, because eventually things work their way down and migrate to the surface. So kind of like a fish uh, tank, you know, you put yeah. food on top of the fish tank and if the fish don't eat that food, eventually that food that's missed might just kind of work their way down to the bottom. And that's how the atmosphere works. Too. Yeah. Interesting. You mentioned that because I did see a study that mentioned um, a, a thinning of the stratosphere uh, that they were studying right now, but um, really interesting. And I'm really glad to have both of you here to, to, to just enlighten us a little bit about your take on what's happening in the local news. And um, hopefully we'll have you back again, Jason, in the future to come and talk to us. Uh, be great to see how things unfold for you. And uh, Carson, thanks again for your time today. Um, much appreciate you guys coming for the 2BC Climate Chat. And for you guys listening, we'll hope you see you again next time. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Carson. Thank you. And thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the 2BC Climate Chat. If you have a question you would like answered, a topic for discussion, or would like to be a guest on the show, please leave a comment below. We'd love to hear your stories and climate journeys. And if you like what you've heard today, please like, subscribe, and comment wherever you hear your podcasts. Next week, we'll be joined by Jeremy Hsu, the Chief Scientific Officer and Co-Founder of EcoBot. Jeremy has used his ecology and botany background to develop a software that offers a change in the way environmental fieldwork is performed. So please be sure to check back in then or find out more about the stories you just heard by visiting our blog at 2degreesea.org and connect to others like you via social media. Thank you to our sponsors and partners without which this podcast is not possible with special thanks to Seren Media for producing today's episode. To find out more about our partners, please visit our website. And if you'd like to become a sponsor or partner, please email us at podcast at 2degreesc.org.